Welcome to the Mental Models Podcast. I'm George Baxter, and I'm a hedge fund manager for SaberPoint Capital Management. I'm Dan Krawczyk. I'm a neuroscientist and professor at the University of Texas at Dallas. And together we explore mental models. That is how we view the world and what the world gives us for feedback. It's not a brain in a jar. That's the gist. We really appreciate you taking the time to listen to the Mental Models Podcast. We would like you to continue to support us and uh, our efforts here and show us that you do appreciate uh, the information that we share. Uh, And you can do so by buying our book, Understanding Behavioral Bias. It's available on Amazon. and, And if you do buy it, what would really help us out is if you could leave a review. It's available in paperback copy and on Kindle. Both are pretty good value, and we think that uh, you can really explore some of the topics that we touch on here in greater depth. Thank you very much, and we hope you continue to enjoy the Mental Models Podcast. Welcome back to the Mental Models Podcast. Uh, We are going to talk about the ever-evolving situation. Uh, This is summer of 2020, and uh, periodically, we have been reviewing just the state of the economy and different developments. And we'll do so again uh, in this episode, just to, to uh, put the, uh, a little bit of context to things. Uh, case numbers have been rising alarmingly, especially in, in uh, states where, where a lot of things have been reopened, notably Florida and California and Texas. And uh, that has resulted in uh, some changes and Uh, The Fed is likely to uh, take further action. It's not happened yet, but uh, we we assume it will. So uh, let's just go ahead and get ourselves started by maybe recapping what's going on now and what we think is uh, maybe going to happen. So I think when we did our uh, initial podcast on the circumstances surrounding COVID, uh, there was some discussion that we talked about various things that could be catalysts for the stock market to go up. But at the same point in time, uh, there were problems on the horizon. So the market had appreciated pretty significantly. At this point in time, each of the indices are up over 40% from their bottoms. Some of them uh, are up more than others, and uh, they didn't have as much of a, uh, a drawdown. Um, and we'll talk a little bit more about that more specifically, the disparity between uh what's happening among small caps and larger cap growth. Uh, But one thing that has happened is we have seen, uh, like Dan said, the case count rise. Uh, There's a pretty significant drop in the betting averages for Trump uh, to win uh, re-election. And Joe Biden, as recently as this last week, made the statement that uh, the era of shareholder capitalism has is over, uh, at least with, as far as he's concerned, and that he's not going to be making policy to help shareholders because they don't need his help. Uh, and then again, he's also talked about a policy of increasing corporate income tax uh, rates from currently at 21% to 28%. That would be a significant negative for profitability in the stock market, when Trump came in and reduced ca- uh, track, uh, tax rates uh, from roughly 30% down to uh, 21%, it created a massive rally in the stock market as everything repriced uh, for this incremental improvement in profitability. But even with this negative news on the horizon, 
the indices continue to gradually rise. Uh, and uh, shockingly, uh, the NASDAQ is actually up 24% for the year, even though the Russell, uh, which is more small cap focused, the Russell 2000, uh, is down almost 15%. And I think part of what's happening is, is you have a tremendous amount of liquidity that's been put into the market. Uh, and a lot of the reflation trade that a lot of retail was engaging in, buying the most hard hit areas like airlines and uh, cruise lines, theme parks, uh, hotels, retailers, those have retraced. Uh, and not, you know, not violently, but there has been a drawdown in those names uh, as the case counts go up. And it's interesting because you have a lot of retail participation that is in those names and they tend to suffer from loss aversion. Uh, now, I think in one of our prior episodes, we talked about the fact that people had uh, basically found money. Uh, a lot of these individual retail investors were investing their stimulus checks that they received from the government. And so uh, their willingness to put that money at risk was much higher because it was money that they didn't have before. Yeah, they didn't experience probably the normal level of loss aversion. It was kind of like playing with the house's money. But we also know that over time, we benchmark off of uh, the highest level of a stock price. So people will look at, you know, how much money that they had made and uh, they, you know, will be quick uh, to uh, either uh, sell once they get back to the point where they had their highest level or if they're, they're actually in a loss position, then they'll want, you know, they'll hold on. And as soon as they get to the point where they're not losing money, then they'll sell. So tremendous anchoring effects possible there. Lots of it. And so um, they tend not to be quick sellers, the the uh, uh, retail investor, meaning that they they tend not to be ones to take profits uh, rapidly um, and or to take losses. You know, they're, they're very it's very difficult uh, for a lot of novice investors uh, to admit that they're on the wrong side of a trade and walk away from it. Uh, and they're typically willing to wait it out with increasing mental anguish that goes along over time. And they continue not to see the previous price point where they entered in the, into the trade until ultimately they come to uh, a capitulation stage. So what could very well happen is though, you know, as you had this self-reinforcing mechanism of stock prices going up, uh, Dave Portnoy, who we talked about before in one of our previous podcasts, his mantra is stocks only go up. And he would say it over and over again. Uh, and if stocks have, you know, you had this massive 40% rise off the bottom, you can certainly feel that stocks only go up. Uh, and then when they start to go against you, uh, then, you know, some people may double their bets, but then uh, they continue in that fashion. Uh, and you can end up with a kind of cascading effect on the downside. Now, at the, on the other end, though, technology, and you know, we talked before about the COVID crisis being a catalyst for people shifting away from uh, traditional uh, forms of commerce in, in the form of going to retail stores, travel, uh, you know, uh, uh, leisure, uh, staying at hotels and things of that nature 
to uh, more activities focused around the home uh, and home delivery, the internet. Technology intervening in almost every a- aspect of your outside life. Exactly. So, you know, that was, uh, those are things that are in, have been in motion for many years now. But of course, with COVID, that it acted as this massive catalyst to speed up the amount of growth associated with uh, things like online e-commerce. Yeah, and it's almost as if we had hit a point with technology and broadband availability that that would be possible. You can imagine if if something like COVID-19 had hit 10 years ago, it would have been uh, different. So here, this this is really where reflexivity tends to come into play. Uh, People see that there's growing improvement in the underlying fundamentals of a business. And so they bid up the stock and that trend continues in the operational trajectory of these businesses, uh, which provides more justification for the stock going up, which then leads for more people to bid up a stock. And normally what happens is uh, you will get to a point where the uh, value of the market itself just gets ahead of itself. It just gets to the point where the whatever narrative that was being priced has been overpriced then you get a reversal just because things get taken too far. And if you think of the true value of a company, which nobody ever really knows, you know, if you think of that as a baseline and then another wavy line around the baseline uh, on an, on typically an upward trajectory, if you're thinking about the market as a whole, uh, that wavy line would be the price of the security. And so the security can drop down below uh, the value of the business and then rise up above the value of the business. And it can, you know, it can be sustained on one direction or the other, but usually you'll see mean reversion back to the uh, intrinsic value of the business. Uh, and here, when the, but the, the goalposts have been continuously moved for equities in the last, call it uh, 38 years. If you look at uh, interest rates, which, you know, we use interest rates typically the 10-year, as the benchmark uh, to determine what the value of all other assets are. And the reason being, of course, is that if you own a treasury, the government will pay you back because they can print the money. You can always say, well, I could invest in this company. Will I get a better return than I get off of the 10-year treasury? Because that's perfectly safe. So you assume all the risk is taken out of that. Now, it's not quite the, the truth because if the value, if inflation rises and the interest rates rise, then you can have significant losses in long-term treasuries. But nonetheless, that tends to be the benchmark that we use to be able to form our discount rates to evaluate companies. And for companies that have a significant amount of growth associated with them, we'll use a discounted cash flow model. And usually a discounted cash flow model is an important metric that's included there Uh it's going to be the interest rate. And as the interest rate declines, then the future cash flows are exaggeratingly more powerful as that discount rate declines. And it's less so than with a value company where the vast majority of the value is in the current earnings yield of the business because you're not anticipating a lot of growth. The other thing that we see with the declining interest rate is that it signals that there's less growth ahead for the country as a whole. You know, typically a 10-year uh, treasury is supposed to be reflective of the uh, 
of GDP, what GDP will look out like over that period of time. And it, right now, the 10-year is at 60 basis points or 65 basis points. That suggests hardly any growth, which would signal that if there is growth associated with other securities, that that growth is worth materially more because it's, there's a scarcity value associated with it. Another way to think of it, too, you know, if you look at just as an as a anecdotal piece of analysis, if you can look at Microsoft, I think right now, I think Microsoft's forward price to earnings ratio is something like 32 times, which is pretty expensive uh, from a historical standpoint. The revenue is growing anywhere from 10 to 15 percent a year, uh, and they have a uh, dividend that is somewhere in the neighborhood of 90 basis points. But if my alternative is a treasury, which I know won't grow. I know a treasury, I'm going to get 60 basis points over 10 years if I buy a 10-year treasury. Or I can buy Microsoft, which has got a 90 basis points dividend yield. And I know that's growing at 10 to 15% a year. It's And they can raise price in the, in the event of inflation. And I can look at the product and I know that it's widely adopted. Then you end up in a situation where it's a world of alternatives. Uh, now, unfortunately, when you get into a world of alternatives, if the benchmark moves, so if we see the interest rate go from 60 basis points to 150 basis points, that would suggest that it would be pretty devastating since we've all remarked our books based off of our anticipated the anticipated lower interest rate. But right now, the Fed has signaled that it is definitely in the market and will continue to be there for some long period of time. Uh, even though we have this wall of worry that we're climbing with the possible uh, change in administration that's going to be less friendly of business with higher tax rates, even though the COVID cases are rising and will very likely get much worse in the winter when the weather is more conducive uh, for spread of the disease, and there are states that are reshutting down market still manages to levitate. Now we've got, there's an assumption that we'll get new stimulus as Congress reconvenes uh, and maybe we'll have an extension of the PPP, which frankly is completely necessary to keep uh, any sort of restaurants still afloat, some of which are already firing people, I'm sure, and maybe extension, uh, some sort of payments to consumers to uh, tide them over until we get past the COVID disease, or at least past the election. It's an interesting time. We did have a movement that was pretty much straight up with a fair amount of euphoria uh, on the notion that we'd seen the worst of COVID. But at the same point in time, people don't stay scared forever. We've talked about that in other podcasts, uh, that this danger is here with us. Uh, it's, it's present and it's continuing. It almost feels as if people were maybe premature and getting comfortable with it. And it I've heard this described. It it's, has a insidious nature and in that people don't get sick instantly. And so because it's very hard to map on behavior to the co real cause of, of, of how you might have contracted it, right? And uh, when you get a situation like that, it's just very hard for people to learn because it's diffuse. It's like you're doing a variety of activities. They have some level of risk. It's very hard to quantify that. And then if you come down with it, you're sort of left to scratch your head a little bit of, of where exactly you got exposed. And uh, 
This is another thing that's been challenging. We talk a lot about thinking in numbers as a useful strategy, when, especially when you're considering something like risk, financial, or, or health-wise for that matter. It's extremely hard to do that because you're trying to uh, gauge the things are not binary, right? You hear a lot of talk about 100% safety or 100% over with. You know, it's really, it's not 100%. And, and that goes for all these other health, health risks. They're all at some non-zero level and certainly not at 100% level. And so I think more than ever, um, people have been struggling with how to calibrate what is the risk level. And uh, that that leads to all of these extrapolations we have about the future, where we're all, in some sense, making up numbers and becoming anchored the whole time and being surprised regularly. Like, so the case numbers, I think it, it may have been foreseeable that we would have a rise in cases, but the kind of exponential nature of the rise at times is almost impossible to intuit because so few things work in our lives at an exponential growth rate. Yes, there's no doubt, uh, you know, pretty focused on the power of compounding. But, you know, when you think about case rates in Texas growing at four to five percent a day, uh, it gets pretty phenomenal how big it actually it actually is. And and for us in Texas, it's more dangerous today than it has ever been. And uh, maybe that's not true in New York. Maybe it is. I don't know. But uh you know, at the same point in time, people's comfort level also rises the longer they live with the phenomena. So even though it's more dangerous today than it's ever been, I think the level of comfort is relatively close to where, you know, to the maximum level of comfort that we've had since this began. And there are so many variations of what you could be doing and not get COVID-19, right? And every, in some sense, every time you do an activity and don't get it, it sort of reinforces the notion that that's pretty safe, right? And and it's um, again, it's viruses are invisible, and uh, you, you don't have very concrete clues a lot of the time. So it makes it very challenging to to guess at. I thought one of the nice uh, tools that I'd seen passed across Twitter pretty widely over the last week was a a ratings chart of risk level, and it was just a one through nine kind of risk level, with one being something like getting your mail, and nine being something like uh, being at, a, at an indoor crowded event, right? And there was everything in between. I, th- I like that because it it just allows you to think, it, it's just a clue, a reminder that the things don't have a 0% risk and they don't have a 100% risk. It's going to be some sliding scale and you have to apply some thought to it on a case-by-case basis. When you try to extrapolate that out into societal behavior, that just becomes completely maddening. Because, uh, you know, we the media kind of filters through what people are doing and high profile openings or high profile closures tend to dominate. And probably no one has a really strong sense of, of exactly what a state is doing at any given moment with the radical changes in population levels and business levels and other things. Yeah, there's no question that uh, this is a very dynamic time and particularly difficult to evaluate in terms of the markets, because you have such massive forces on either side. Though I will say as time passes and more people get it, eventually we move closer to herd immunity, which we will reach at some point. 
but I think right now the estimates, you know, typically to get herd immunity, you need something like 50%, I think. Well, it's particularly challenging because it's unclear how many cases there have been and how many silent cases or asymptomatic cases. And anybody generating a number is going to have to have a big uh, guess at what that what that sort of actual asymptomatic case load has been, maybe 10 times the reported numbers. And then, uh, of course, you have these challenges of really knowing to what degree does someone have immunity if they've had it. And that's not 100% clear. At this right. There's been either. at least one case of local, locally that we've heard of, of somebody who contracted it twice. Right. So these unknowns make herd immunity a speculative enterprise at this point. But ultimately, we'll get to a point where COVID is behind us, or at least, I don't know, who knows, maybe maybe we end up seeing it every season. It's one of those pathogens that's going to be out there for a while, so we'll wait and see. Yeah, but I, but I think as far as uh, the markets, we will adjust. There will be a point in time where uh, this is no longer a massive factor. We will probably increase the debt we already have. Uh, we've had more stimulus associated with this in three months than we had in the complete in the entire financial crisis over several years. Vaccines and other treatments will make a huge difference, right? If there are, if there's not even a vaccine necessarily, but a treatment that makes the case level uh, much less, uh, makes the reaction less uh, negative to your health, that that would change things a lot too. But we just we'll just have to see how it. How it develops, um, my suspicion, if you know, if I were to guess, is that uh, we may continue to see some pressure uh, over the coming days until we becomes clear what the stimulus package is going to be. Well, the election year makes it all t- totally uncertain. I think we, we probably would have a different uh, perspective, whatever happens in November. Yeah, I will say that the politicians typically go and make a lot of promises uh, from now and good, you know, they offer a lot of goodies. They want to be the happy guy who's going to go and make a brighter day uh, for the populace. But it may be difficult uh, given uh, the stance that we've seen from Biden thus far. And uh, it seems that uh, Trump has kind of been battled. So I don't know. I don't know. We'll, we'll have to see uh, in the next coming month or so. And we'll provide another update. Yeah, I look forward to future commentary for us where our assumptions will probably be upended entirely. Yes, that, that I think we can. That That is probably a certainty. Okay, we'll talk to you again soon. Thank you for spending your time listening to the Mental Models Podcast. Content matters because your brain does not exist in a job. Please subscribe and like Mental Models Podcast. The five-starred book, Understanding Behavioral Bias, A Guide to Improving Financial Decision-Making, is available through Amazon. This book will help you overcome the biases that are keeping you from investing success. The Mental Models Podcast can be found on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Overcast, iHeartRadio, and Stitcher. Please subscribe and thank you for listening.